as a hiring manager, your network is so critically important. You can ask as much as you want in the interview, you can look at that resume, but you also need to know all of the competitive businesses with whom you vie for talent, and Sales Assembly is great for this, but with whom you discuss talent so that you can make the two phone calls where you can say, hey, I'm looking at a resume for so-and-so. Tell me the real deal. And you can have a hiring manager who said they were my best and we messed up their comp plan and I lost them and it still kills me to this day right? So one, don't just turn it over. Don't make it an immediate no. Try and dig in and find out why and really lean on your network to understand the story behind some of these things. Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast featuring conversations with the most accomplished, admired, and amazing female revenue leaders throughout B2B tech. Taking the Lead is hosted by Christina Brady, a sales leader, lifelong learner, and president of Sales Assembly. This show is brought to you by Sales Assembly, the industry's first and only scale-as-a-service platform that helps high-growth tech companies scale better, scale faster, and scale smarter. Visit salesassembly.com to learn more. And now, let's jump into the conversation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady, and this episode is brought to you by our phenomenal sponsors. The first one is Showpad. They are the best thing to happen to your sales team. With Showpad, you can enable your team to win with the content and training they need to drive more meaningful customer conversations. If you want to learn more about them, visit showpad.com. Our next incredible sponsor is Upwork. And speaking of best things, ever, Upwork is the world's work marketplace. It connects millions of businesses with independent talent around the globe. It serves everyone from startups to 30% of the Fortune 100 companies. They are the trust-driven platform that enables companies and freelancers to work together. If you want to learn more about them, visit Upwork.com. And finally, we could not produce this podcast without our partnership with the incredible team at Motion. Our third sponsor is a podcasting service for marketing teams in B2B tech. They launch podcasts, just like this one and help to create the audio, video, and written content for each episode. You can find them and learn more about them at motionagency.io. I'm excited to dive into today. Our guest is Helen Kelvin, the Chief Revenue Officer of Jelly Vision. Helen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Uh, me too. Before we dive into our content today, we are going to be talking about hiring and interviewing and talent selection. And I don't know about you, but I could go on for hours about that because it is such a meaningful topic. <laughs> it's so meaningful. And it's actually one of my favorite parts of the gig. It's just my favorite part of the job. So I'm excited to talk about it. Oh, yay. Good. Taking one step back, you have an incredible journey. You are working for a phenomenal company and you have been there and really ascended for well over a decade. Talk to us a little bit about your professional journey, how you got where you are and some of the decisions that you made along the way. Well over a decade. You know, when you've been somewhere enough <laughs> years that it has its own nomenclature to it, a decade, it's, I guess, unusual, certainly in Texas, but there's been a journey to get there. Yes, my background is all in behavioral science and why people do the strange, inane things that we do, even despite our own best interests, and brought that to Jelly Vision, yes, a decade ago, really working on the user behavior side and 
when we looked at the users of our products, what insights could we glean and what could, could we learn? And that sort of matriculated into what value could we, from those insights, provide to our customers? And then the story sort of goes from there, of bringing that value to customers on the existing side to then running the new sales side uh, to running the entire revenue organization. And, you know, when I talk to people looking at career paths or sort of asking that really embarrassing self-facing question, well, how did you get where you are? I just always say the best way to get the job you want is to crush the job you have. Just be really earnest about the role that you have in the company where you're solving problems and where you're changing the game for them and being a student of whatever industry or whatever company you're in to say, you know, if I impacted this, then that would really make a difference. And I think sometimes I see people go in the opposite direction. They say, I could impact this. So let me ask for the opportunity or the promotion or give me the license to go impact that. Give me the credence for impacting it, but I haven't even impacted it yet. And I would just say, go tackle the problem. Just go tackle the problem. Do something interesting, do something hard, and the rest will really will fall out from there. Have you had a time in your life when you've been in a position and asked for the promotion? I think most people, the thought of that is terrifying, but you're right. In so many instances, it is the self-promotion. Have you personally done that or seen that? You know, I think it's less about asking. Yes, I have done that. I've done that at prior companies. And I actually think that's a real signal that you're not at the right company. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is if you're having to ask for the promotion, the company is not looking at the right valuation of you as talent. You shouldn't be asking for the promotion. You should be talking about impact to the business. You should be talking about the results that have been driven. And then frankly, the promotion or the career progression, all those things, they just become obvious. It doesn't have to be some really scary, arduous conversation. And if you're having to go in and prove to your boss your merit and your worth you've got a manager and a boss and a company that's not looking for the right things and so the conversations you should be having should be around results that impact the business and then the career stuff honestly does kind of fall from there Absolutely. And that's a perfect segue talking about career, moving up the career in your career path, doing things when you're ready to do them. And as a company having to decide what people do I put in seats, it narrows right into the topic, which is this idea around how do we hire the right people? Why is that important? How do we make decisions, whether to hire from the outside or hire from the inside? We're going to dive into all of that. But to kind of kick it off, we mentioned at the beginning, you said this is one of my favorite topics. Why is talking about this one of your favorite things? Maybe it's just uh, I've read too much container store Kip Tyndall, or maybe it's just my (laughs) own experience. But really to be a leader in a company is about how you become exponential and multiplicative of yourself. And that is only done through people. And it's not done through your tech stack. And it's not done through strategy. And it's not done through anything but your people. And I think your ability to locate talent, motivate talent, sieve through the good from the great and put talent in a position where it can be successful and support it is so central to the success of your own pursuits and of the businesses. 
Yeah, and I think making a decision on how you find that talent is absolutely paramount. And so for you, when you are thinking about starting with hiring before we kind of dive into interviewing, how do you as a company make the decision whether you're going to hire talent from the outside versus promote from within? I have heard lots of companies that say, oh, we only promote leadership from within or other companies who say, oh, we only hire leaders from the outside. And I have to imagine the magic exists somewhere in the middle of that. But in your opinion, how do you decide where to find the right people. Absolutely. I think there's two lenses by which I look at any gap that we might have in the company that we're starting to say adding a person is what we need in this slot. And I would say the two lenses are one, do we have the skills in-house that can be grown into this role? Do we have a good career pathing mechanism where people might have gotten some of the foundational pieces and we just have to add on a couple more layers to get them where we need to go? Is it a completely net new role? Is it something that we haven't had the skill sets before? And can we find them in our organization. And then the second lens is what's the portfolio of the team that this is becoming a part of? It's really, you want to have that. We talk about diversity of talent all the time and diversity has so many computations to it. And one is you want a mix of fresh, different perspective as well as tenured IP. And so a lot of times what I'm saying, should it be in-house? Should it be external? How much of that mix do we have going on right now? I've been at Jellyvision a decade. We have members of the executive team that have been at Jellyvision for 90 days. And that very of perspective is really critical to both propelling new ideas, not being bogged down in the scar tissue of we tried this before, but also ramp in terms of what we do know and the historical knowledge of the business. So I'd say it's those sort of pieces. Do we have the foundational experience that we can just level up? And then two, what's the portfolio mix of tenure versus not diversity of perspective on the team? I love the sort of duality that you're talking about there in terms of different ways to look at it. And I imagine, especially a lot of frontline leadership when they're thinking about, okay, it's exciting. I finally have the green light to hire. I have the budget to hire. And now you ask them, okay, well, what's your hiring profile? And a lot of times, if you've never been trained to think about that, you just go like, I don't know. So for that beginner leader, what are some things that you think about in terms of how you identify talent? Do you look at culture first? Do you look at skill? Do you look at experience? Do you look at potential? What do you look at? to build a profile. Yeah, I think we have some rubrics that we put in place. So we use the Corn Ferry core competencies, which are sort of skills. What are the seven most critical things that we need this person to be able to do? And it's much more skill-based and experience-based than it is sort of tactical, meaning, okay, if we're going to hire an engineer, you have to know how to write in certain coding languages. But we're really talking about more where do they behaviorally sit on the spectrum. So we do use frameworks like that. And then I really try and encourage my managers to ask the questions of ask themselves, what If six months from now I looked back at this hire, what would be the two or three things that would really determine whether I looked back and said, oh my gosh, I've made a horrible mistake versus this person transformed my business. And we really try and start from that, how people think and how they operate as opposed to necessarily, is it one to three years of this skill or five to seven years of that skill? Is it apropos? Is it important that they're part of your vertical in your business that they've been in tech SaaS before? Are you looking for 
something else. One of my top performers, she's now my SVP of sales and account management. She came from nonprofit business development, which in the modern hiring environment, particularly in some of the hot tech markets, someone from nonprofit applies and they wouldn't even consider this candidate. And I will tell you, someone who has the fearlessness and the grit against rejection because they've done business development and nonprofit, they are asking for money for nothing. And they're getting told no all day long. If you're talking about grit and resilience, that's a good profile. <laughs> that's a really good profile. They have a fearlessness that maybe somebody apropos to your industry wouldn't have. I'm lighting up right now because you are honing in on, to me, one of the most critical mistakes that, especially early on, but sometimes more advanced and experienced hiring managers make, and the mistake is, I'm going off of the experience on paper versus doing the extra work of deciding, what have you done in your past that I can apply that I can't necessarily teach you? Like, what are the things that you are born with that make you different? Like, if you are an incredible seller or an incredible negotiator, or you've been through some hardship in your life and gotten through it, I can teach you how to sell this product, but like, I can't teach you how to have that grit. And it reminds me, I have a similar situation where in one of my prior companies, gosh, she's going to kill me, but her name is Jess Gold. She was looking to change industries and I was hiring for a more advanced role within my organization. And I remember my HR leader said, you know, we've got this girl, great conversation with her, but she doesn't really have the relevant experience. I don't know if you're interested in talking to her. And I said, well, heck, like, yeah, let me talk to her. And listening to the way that she talked and the way that she communicated and how she thought about the role. I was like, I can teach this girl to sell this product, but there is some killer instinct in her that I love. And I hired her and she to this day is one of the top performers at that company. And so it's like, if I had said, no, she doesn't have the experience that I need on paper, right. I'm not going to talk. I would have missed that talent. So it's like, do you encourage people to look between the lines on that? Oh, absolutely. And we encourage to sieve for adaptability too. You know, you said there's, yes, maybe there are some things that you're born with, but also just how adaptable are you? And I think sometimes we think too myopically, how coachable are you? But you actually want self-propelled learning, not just am I going to learn when given precise feedback and I change based on that feedback. How much am I propelling my own development and growth, my own adaptive learning? Not to jump to the interview, but one of my favorite questions to ask in interviews is if we have someone do an exercise, one of our frameworks that we use is we say, great, you know, maybe they do a mock pitch or something in our interviewing process. And we say, it's Groundhog Day. If you've seen the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, he's living the same day over and over again, but no one else is. And so he has the insight to live the same day over again. We say, you get a Groundhog Day do-over. What do you change about what you just did with this pitch? You see, how do they self-reflect? How do they self-adapt? How do they self-coach? Are they self-propelled in that way as opposed to just really requiring the coaching to come externally? That's fantastic because I think a lot of people in the interview process, and it's a perfect segue into it, they do the right things where it's we have this initial phone screen and we're screening for the behavioral and qualifications that we want from your behavior, your culture, your experience. They do a role play but they do the role play to see how well do you perform in the role play versus doing the role play where the initial one almost isn't the important piece. It's almost, how are you going to take the feedback? How are you going to look at things through a different lens? And I often see that mistake made too, you know, where they're not looking at the right thing in the role play and they miss that opportunity to really hone in on somebody who could be a good employee. Do you see mistakes like that made a lot? 
I do. And I would say of all hiring, because I've, again, I had a career before sales where I worked in merchandising and brand management for a retail company. Just don't go on my LinkedIn. It makes no sense. I need to just <laughs> put one word that says, call me if you want to know the deal. I think sales hiring is particularly difficult because you can very easily sniff out terrible salesperson versus, you know, medium or good salespeople. But that delta between good to great is very hard because good salespeople know how to present for 30 minutes, right? And so early managers just getting beyond that veneer, getting beyond that layer to what really makes this person tick, to what really makes them operate on a day-to-day basis can be hard. And so really encourage out-of-the-box question asking and question asking that just gets more at how they think than what they would quote unquote do in any given situation. And you're so right. The mock pitch is not about whether you know my product that well. It's not about those sort of things. It's what you do with that information. I think a great, and I'm giving away all my secrets. So now everyone who applies at Jellyvision is going to know them all. <laughs> Here's an example. A bad interviewee salesperson comes, they haven't looked at my LinkedIn. They haven't looked at my profile. They have no research. They know nothing. A good person comes in and says, Helen, I saw that you really love the movie Mortal Kombat. That's so funny that that's your favorite movie, right? Okay, they've done the research, they've done whatever, but they haven't done anything with that information. They've just regurgitated it. And a great salesperson comes in and says, okay, I totally sleuthed you online. Mortal Kombat, Helen, I have to tell you, it makes me dubious about your leadership style at Jellyvision that you would like such a movie. You know, can we talk about why you like this movie so I can better understand your perspective on how you run the business or teams or whatever. Do something with the information. Do something with it. And I think that we sometimes have our little checklist where we say, oh, pre-research the company, check. Good salesperson, check. And we haven't vetted for that next level dot connection. The I so mean, it's- what? Yes, it comes down to you want to hire people who are interviewing you back. Like you want to hire people who are being just as critical about their career move as you are about their career move. And those two people, the difference to me in the psychology of it is one person who is trying to impress you and the other person who is trying to decide, do I want to work with you? Am I going to be motivated to work at this company? Like I always want to see that two-sided interview process where someone's interviewing me. I had the same thing where I used to interview people all the time and I had a couple who would be like, no, this sounds great. So what do you do here? And I was like, I lead this whole department. Why don't you know that? You know, <laughs> like, and then you don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I mean, that's a tip I would give to, and I do try and give to early hiring managers. You know, they say, well, what are the questions you like to ask? And I certainly have a rubric for those. But I think one of the most important things you can do is most interviewers the ratio of them asking questions versus them allowing the candidate ask questions is 90-10 or 75-25. It should be two-thirds you at max, if not only half you. If I have half an hour, I'm taking 18, 16 minutes of it. And the rest is for the candidate to ask me back questions. One, because they need to make sure this is the right job for them too. If they are not excited, if they're not motivated, if it's not a good fit for them, it's not gonna work for us. And two, you get to find out very quickly, do they run through their three pre-prepared questions and then they're out of them? Or are they really curious? Are they really an interested person? Do they really have a dialogue to them where they're trying to understand or trying to investigate something in particular 
especially if you're hiring salespeople, you want that investigative nature to be a part of them. And I want the person who is coming to the end of their 12 or 14 minutes saying, hey, I want to be respectful of your time. I have 10 more questions. Do you have time for it? And if I say no, they say, great, I'm going to pick my best one. But I never want them to run out of that cache of questions. Their quiver should just be full of questions. And more than they came in with, too. It's like there's the pre-prepared questions, but the interview should prompt 10 more. It should germinate new questions because they've actually yeah. been listening. And that started the hamster in their wheel and their brain turning, creating new, new ideas that they want to learn. What you're also kind of touching on leans itself into the conversation around the cost of a bad hire. And I hear a lot of people in leadership say, salespeople interview so well. And it's not until 60 to 90 days after I hire them that I realize they were the wrong fit and I don't know how to screen for that. So to dive into that topic a little bit, in your experience, what do you think the cost is of a bad hire? How does that negatively impact a team and a company? I would say the scarier cost isn't the bad hire the scarier cost is the mediocre average hire. The bad hire you find out in 60 or 90, and I'm not saying it's not painful. It's for sure painful. You know, you have to have tough conversations. You maybe have to move people quickly. You burned three months that you really needed on your ramp of whatever your quota was for the year. But the bad hire surfaces itself quickly and you remedy it quickly. It's the average hire that hurts because the average hire, your manager's can spend a year, two years, three years, desperately trying to get them to that next level. And nothing that they're doing is egregious enough that you can move quickly. And you're just sort of in this purgatory, stuck with the average hire. So I would say the cost of the average hire is much higher than of the bad hire. And yeah, you measure it by all those pieces of lost quota, lost ramp. But to me, what I'm measuring the cost is it's the cost against the whole production of the team. I have a phrase I say often, which is average really likes to work next to mediocre. People really like to look good relative to the person next to them. Great likes to work next to great. And every average hire you bring into organization risks the rising tide of the ships of all your great players. And it also makes your great players question whether they're at a place that's going to support and only abide great talent and that has the discipline and the motivation to move to the next level. So it's not necessarily the cost of that person, that average hire. It's cost to the broader team of top talent you want feeling like they're on a winning team. I could talk about this for a really long time because I don't know that I have ever honestly thought about it in terms of the bad versus the average, but you're right. It's that solid 89% to target individual consistently that they're not at the point for most people where they're hitting the performance management thresholds where you can put them on a pip or you can you know talk to them about moving to it, but they're also not the top player and they're consistently like hitting the company quarter over quarter, but not bad enough. And it goes into a large part of hiring and interviewing is then career career pathing. Once you bring the people in, what do you do with them? So if you have made that average hire who probably interviewed really, really well, and you're stuck in purgatory, what do you do? I think it's really goes back to the basics of expectation setting. And I think you have to be very conscientious that your expectations aren't just the numerical numbers on a spreadsheet for a sales organization. They're about the additive elements of sort of behavioral impacts. Are you adaptive? Are you getting better? It's not just are you hitting your numbers, but are you getting incrementally better? 
that then is where you can say, okay, this wasn't an average hire. It was a talented hire who just frankly hadn't had exposure to the skill sets or the experience to get there yet. So you really want to look for and set goals against progression, not just baseline quantitative goals. Yes, because I think a lot of times that average hire also what can make it so tough is they're also satisfied with mediocrity and they're satisfied with being stagnant. And it's nothing against them personally, but we have all experienced that worker or maybe at some point in our lives been that person where the passion is lacking a little bit. You're doing good enough. You're happy enough. And the motivators aren't there where it's like, well, I don't really know know, what my next step is. And I know I want to work here, but I don't know what I want to do. And so it can be hard to motivate that person to even have the awareness of the fact that they're average and it's not working out. So do you eventually have to start to look at those average hires that you can't move and start to maybe start to view them as bad hires and say, I have to have a plan for how I do this? That's what I would say. Performance management has to go and expectations have to go beyond just, you know, if it's an individual contributor, the sales quota, they have to go beyond how are you further driving this team and really starting to understand that it is exciting expected to play outside your lane. It is expected to be driving this business and this organization forward beyond just your sales quota. That is actually minimum expectation. So to your point, you start to not really have average hires get those three ratings on their performance reviews because they're not propelling it forward. In many of our teams under the leadership, you have your quota, you have your sales goals that you have to meet, and then you also have goals for what or tasks or projects that you are the task manager or the task owner on other things. To give a really crisp example, you might be an account manager who has a renewal quota. You're also in charge of our customer journey playbook. And your job is to not only hit your renewal quota, but also be making all of the evolutions that we need to on our customer journey playbook and rolling those out to the rest of the team. So when you have schematics like that in place where people really have to be contributors beyond their own role, the average hire can't really be sustained from a performance perspective. What I like that you're talking about is it broadens up the opportunity to performance manage against things that are not numbers related. But if a core part of the expectations of the role are behavioral aspects and culture aspects and a desire to always be moving forward, then you give yourself multiple outs when you have somebody in the seat who isn't a fit. It's like maybe you're not from a performance standpoint where we would be to performance manage you, but from a cultural standpoint or a behavior standpoint or a month over month progression standpoint, you're not. And it makes it easier for you staying out of HR's way. It's also two birds, one stone. When you manage that way, you're also not just sort of protecting yourself against what we're kind of calling this average hire, you're also protecting yourself against the toxic lone wolf hire. And this is a real soapbox of mine. I see too many sales organizations become beholden to their top performing rep who makes two and three and five X their quota, or I'll hear a sales manager or a CRO say to me, but she's 30% of my yearly sales. And yet, you know she's dragging the rest of the organization down. You know she's toxic. You know that she or he is frankly, bringing the production of everyone down, probably at a rate that is under her his 30% production. And yet you're shackled. You're just shackled. And you have to put those sort of outside your lane expectations in place because then that person can't become a cancer in your organization. And that person then doesn't hold you hostage. 
this is the right soapbox because a lot of times those lone wolves have been led to believe that behavior, that persona is the right thing and it is desired. And I've actually interviewed people who describe themselves as, you know, I'm the lone wolf, I'm autonomous. You go and let me do my thing and I'll handle it. And it's almost become this thing that people strive for. And I've always thought like, I don't necessarily want the lone wolf. Like I want the person who wants to be a part of the team who is always looking to be better because lone wolf also starts to lend itself to I have nothing to learn and you can't do anything with people who have nothing to learn right exactly and you can't make up a team of lone wolves right so unless this one human is gonna hit all your sales goals for the year there's a reason it's called lone wolf there's no world in which 10 lone wolves you know really produce the total outcome that you need to identify if you're interviewing somebody who may be someone who falls into that sort of persona, are there questions you can ask or ways that you can identify, like, do I have a potential lone wolf here? I ask real behavioral questions and often I get scrutiny or scrunched up furrowed brows because people come in and they say, this was not, you know, I had done all of my question modeling ahead of time. I was prepared to talk about the deal I lost or something. (laughs) One of my favorite questions to ask on that front is, what's the last most recent row you got into? What's the biggest fight you got into recently? Who's really mad at you? And you make someone tell you the story of where they've recently had friction. And you can ask follow-up questions. Okay, so-and-so is really mad at you. I'm picking them up and I'm calling them on the phone right now. What are the first things that you say to them to try and resolve this fight? And you start to find out how much do they take accountability for issues that they're having? How much do they have self-awareness or self-perspective of their role in any situation? And if you get to the sort of phone pickup, how often are the first words out of their mouth I'm sorry, here's my culpability in this situation. Or how much of the first words out of their mouth defense or trying to cajole or prove their point? And you start to understand how does this person reflect on their own, again, it's their own self-awareness. Do they see their role in the fortune of their life? And do they see how they play with others? Well, you're also talking about uncovering their ability to understand before they're understood. And as salespeople, you have to find the exact balance there. You have to find a moment where your prospect is right and you are wrong and where you are right and they are wrong. And if you are not actively curious and willing to let your ego down so that you can get the larger win, you're not going to make it very far. Right. You know, what is the win? Is the win being right or is the win the outcome that you wanted? I once had a moment with my husband and my husband is also in sales and he's much more temperate than I am. We were at a rental age car agency and the rental car, we were returning the rental car on time, two hours before it was due. And the person said, your car's late. Technically you owe us another $79, but I'm going to waive it for you. I immediately wanted to go, I do not owe you $79. Look at the contract. I'm here on time, whatever. And my husband very calmly said, what is the outcome that you want? And I said, well, we shouldn't pay $79. And he said, we're not paying $79. And he said, who cares if she gets the feeling of she waived it and helped us versus you were right and she knows that she was wrong. He said, you're not paying the $79. And you want reps who think that way, who say, what is the outcome I want? And the outcome isn't necessarily me being right. Who cares if you're right? (laughs) You know, are you getting the greater win? 
I am inspired by this because it starts to lean into the area of salespeople when they get the yes, continuing to sell because I have more to say versus you just got the outcome that you want. Like they said, yes, you can be quiet and you can move on. (laughs) But I had my seven prepared points that are now sitting, you know, in the ether and I didn't get to say them. Well, it's okay. I have one more thing that I am dying to get your opinion on in terms of hiring and interviewing, and it's what to look out for and whether or not you should be cautious of people who have a lot of hopping around on their resume. Being a former head of sales, I would often see people who would interview for roles on my team who would spend maybe a year, year and a half at every company before jumping and before moving. And oftentimes that would make me take a pause because the first thing I would think is, are you just going to come here for a year and a half before moving on? In your opinion, do you feel like people who are frequently jumping around companies, moving around roles. Is that something to be cautious of? Oh, it is one of the toughest things to sort of wait. And what I would say is my natural instinct, as you've said, is it immediately gives you pause. But you also have to understand the dynamics of our current hiring environment. One, Mm. incredibly startup and small business driven where there's a lot of boom and busts. Sales Assembly, I know, started in Chicago, if you look at the Chicago market, there were the golden children who fell from grace. There's just a lot of movement that can come out of that, out of none of the auspices of the candidate, right? Mm -hmm. There's a youth to picking what product you want to sell and what kind of organization you want to be in. And there can be a lot in experience learning of what's really the right fit for you. So I would tell hiring managers, do not flip over the proverbial resume just because of those, that sort of volatility. Do the due diligence to ask the question to know why they moved from place to place and was it just wanderlust or were there really substantive reasons for doing so the other thing is this is so about back channel references and your network as a hiring manager your network is so critically important you can ask as much as you want in the interview you can look at that resume but you also need to know all of the competitive businesses with whom you vie for talent and sales assembly is great for this, but with whom you discuss talent so that you can make the two phone calls where you can say, hey, I'm looking at a resume for so-and-so. Tell me the real deal. And you can have a hiring manager who said they were my best and we messed up their comp plan and I lost them and it still kills me to this day right? So one, don't just turn it over. Don't make it an immediate no. Try and dig in and find out why and really lean on your network to understand the story behind some of these things. I want to double tap on that point of the references. I almost feel like the trend right now is that it's like, oh, well, they actually asked for references or they actually used them. Wow. And I'm like, oh my God, you should. And in your opinion, do you feel like people should use the references given to you by the candidate or should you go and kind of do your own research and find your own references? I I think you should use the references given by the candidate and you should have, like I said, your own back channel network. I have pretty good relationships with a lot of the CROs in the markets within which Jellyvision operates and you want that simpatico relationship where frankly, I want them to feel comfortable calling me and saying, Helen, I'm looking at one of your salespeople. They're applying for a job at my company. And I want to be able to say to them, let me save you the trouble. They're actually on a performance plan. I'm getting ready to exit them. Or I want to say to them, darn, you might get one of my best. 
here's what you would have to do, you know, in order to win them over. Here's one of the best. And we're going to have that frank conversation because I want them to be doing the same for me and for us to understand that the talent pool is a fluid environment within which we all need to understand. If we're not getting our talent what they need next at our organization, that's on us. That's not on the recruiter who's calling them. That's on me. If I'm not keeping you at Jelly Vision, that's wholly in my core, not in the hiring manager who's talking to my candidate. Yes, and what you're talking about too, which is what I think we should all strive for, is a culture of trust and respect amongst the B2B tech ecosphere, is the fact that we build as a culture of leaders and people within B2B tech of that trust and respect where we just level with each other like that and like picture a world where we do that. It's incredible. Well, it is about time to get to our last segment, which is the rapid reveal. The rapid reveal. (laughs) It's five questions that we try to have you answer in 60 seconds or less, but it is meant to give the audience a better idea of who you are more on a personal level since we've gotten very familiar with you on a professional level. So if you are up for it, question number one, let's dive in. Tell us about a time you did the right thing, but no one knew about it. This happens a lot in work where we exit people gracefully with strong exit packages and I never talk about it. And I let people have their own story for why they left the company, even if it was performance-based, even if it was something hard, because it's so important to the integrity and the trust that you build within an organization. So all the time. That is a beautiful gift to give to people. Like normally I don't hone in on these, but what you just said right there is the difference between doing what's right today and making what could be a positive impact in changing people's lives. Like letting them have control of their story and giving them some grace upon an exit is a gift that I think is a really beautiful thing. I just, I had to say that. So I love that you do that. I hope more people take a page from that book. The second one, number two, if you could teach someone only one life skill, what would it be? I think it's perspective on really, this sounds bad, but how much you actually matter in other people's day. People get so self-conscious. They leave a meeting and they say, well, I did this, I did that, I did that. I say, do you recognize the person you were talking to was just looking at themselves in the Zoom camera the whole time? Like you're not as instrumental in other people's lives as you believe. And while that may be depressing, it's also so freeing. It's so freeing. You really only have to be confident and care in yourself because no one else is worried about you as much as you are. So just enjoy and revel in that freedom. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. How freeing. Beautiful. Number three, and this one, I ask this one to everybody because it's my favorite and I don't know why, but what's an irrational fear of yours? I cannot stand the thought of being chased. And it goes as far as if I'm walking up the stairs and someone else is walking behind me, I will pretend that I have to reach down and tie my shoes in order for them to pass so that there is not someone behind me. I played soccer my whole life and I only ever played defense, even though it was a pretty good striker. Less chasing. Just true fact. Oh my gosh. Can you tie that back to anything from your childhood or is it just always I'm sure there's some deeply, (laughs) deeply buried neuroses that this stems from that I should probably be going to therapy for. But as of right now, just means I don't really like when you're walking down the hallway behind me. Oh, that's anxiety inducing. I don't blame (laughs) you for that one. (laughs) Number four, what is a controversial opinion of yours? Fennel is disgusting and I don't know why it's in 90% of foods at this point. You cannot (laughs) go to an elite restaurant where at least half of the menu isn't littered with fennel and I do not understand the need for fennel. 
I feel as passionately as you do about cucumber water. I think it's the worst thing that has ever been introduced to the world and I don't understand it, but that gets a lot of people really mad. <laughs> you know, it's just that licorice anise flavor or something that is so au courant and I do yeah. not understand. All right, no fennel in your meals, got no. it. And last but certainly not least, what is the most unique thing about you? It sounds like I'm evading the question and I am not. My CEO once asked me, what's your greatest superpower? And she didn't like my answer, but I said, I'm really good at picking people. And mm-hmm. I have augmented and propelled my life far more than my own talents because I have picked indelibly the greatest husband, the greatest set of friends, and I am very good at surrounding myself with people who make me better human than I actually am inherently. And I do think that is a unique talent that I am incredibly grateful that I have. It's probably because you have a really high level of empathy and when you can feel that from other people, you generally know how to pick and you can read them easily. It's a good skill set for somebody in a position like yours to have. So I know, I mean, that sort of, benefits it's sort of you well. apropos, we're talking about hiring, but it really is. It's understanding your own shortfalls and saying, okay, what are the things that can compliment me here? And not being afraid, surround yourself with people who are better than you are. You know, not being afraid to be the dumbest person in the room. Mm. Yeah, humble and empathetic. Those are two big ones. We are coming up on time. That and I have gigantic feet. Just What size? I wear wear an 11 and I am a whopping five foot three. I am a fun size Snickers. I am travel size, except for these gargantuan feet, which come out of nowhere, but make me incredibly stable. And I don't fall (gasps) over and I can wear any height heel of shoe just because of sheer surface area. And I feel like they always have your size too. You probably rack it up at like a Nordstrom rack, all the designer shoes and all that. It's a little jealous. It's a very odd physical niche that I live in. We all have our things. I can turn my hand in a full 360 circle and I always freak out my husband and I'm starting to freak out my son with it. So we've all got our things. Well, now and then now I'm going to go to the next sales assembly event and everybody's going to be like (laughs) peeking under the table to see if they can see, you know. I want to see those giant feet. Eleven's <laughs> not so bad. I was picturing like Hobbit level bad and it's, it's we're not there. So thank goodness. But if people want to learn more about you or connect to you or learn more about Jelly Vision and what you do, where can people go to learn about you, connect with you and learn more about your company? Yeah. Meet Alex is the Jelly Vision website, which I highly recommend digging into. And there's we're always hiring and have a lot of great roles available. And then really do connect with me on LinkedIn. Ignore the terrible profile page. But I feel very adamant about building the community at large, not just those that serve my own purposes. So I'm always happy to connect with anybody who's struggling with a problem, thinking about career pathing, wondering what they Mm. should do next. And I am known for my jar of two cents. If you want two of it, I'll give it away for free. Wonderful, because we need more of that. And we need more of that from incredible female leaders. The world needs it. So I'm glad that you're here offering it. Thank you so much again for spending time with us, for coming on the show. It was wonderful having you on Taking the Lead. Thank you again. Thanks. Bye-bye. This episode was brought to you by Sales Assembly. For more information about membership or our free 60-day trial, visit us at salesassembly.com. And if you like what you just heard, please subscribe to Taking the Lead on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening.